You're listening to the On The Go with Viego News Podcast for July 2017. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. In this podcast, the VAO team consolidates and summarizes the key takeaways from the most important acquisition-related policies, guidance, regulatory changes, and more over the past month. Dara Curran is our host for this month's VAO team review of top developments looking back at the month of June 2017. Take it away, Dara. So welcome to our recent acquisition updates, where we'll be taking a look at top developments from June of 2017. Joining me today are my VAO colleagues. We have Scott Cox, Brittany Shapiro, and Julie LeBlanc. Today we'll be discussing legislative and administrative updates, new and noteworthy matters. Uh, we're going to talk some about interesting government accountability office and inspector general oversight insights that occurred during the month, policy and regulation changes, of course, and we'll be concluding with protest and court news. We will start out, as usual, with legislative and administrative updates. So, Scott, take it away. Thanks, Dara. On the legislative front, I should lead off with a bill signed into law by President Donald Trump in June that extends whistleblower protections to federal employees who refuse to violate government rules and regulations, including the federal acquisition regulations. The Follow the Rules Act is intended to block agencies from implementing a June 2016 court ruling that federal rules and regulations do not qualify as statute and therefore are not covered under the Whistleblower Protection Act. In the case, a federal employee was directed by his supervisor to require a contractor to rehire a fired subcontractor, but the employee declined to follow this directive because it violated a provision in the FAR. The employee's supervisor later gave him a negative performance review and removed him from duties as a contracting officer's representative. The ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals affirmed a Merit Systems Protection Board finding that the agency was permitted to take disciplinary action because federal rules and regulations do not have the weight of law. Congressman James Comer of Kentucky said the ruling put federal employees in an impossible position, noting that the new law, quote, makes clear that employees are protected from retaliation for disobeying orders that would violate an agency rule or regulation, end quote. The Department of Veterans Affairs Accountability and Whistleblower Protection Act also became law in June. It authorizes the Secretary of Veterans Affairs to remove or suspend employees within the department for poor performance or misconduct. The legislation received largely bipartisan support in Congress, passing the House on a 368-55 vote and the Senate on a voice vote. Other provisions in the law allow the VA Secretary to recoup a VA employee's bonus and or relocation expenses if the department determines that such action is appropriate though the affected employee would have the opportunity to appeal the decision. Also, reduce retirement benefits for a VA employee convicted of a felony that, quote, influenced the individual's performance while employed in the position, end quote. However, an appeals process would also be permitted. And lastly, the VA secretary is authorized uh, a direct hiring authority for medical center directors and directors of veterans' integrated service networks with the goal of filling these positions faster. 
The measure also would codify and revamp the Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection within VA that was established by an executive order issued in April. According to the Congressional Budget Office, the Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection currently advises and assists the VA Secretary on matters relating to protecting whistleblowers and disciplining or terminating employees guilty of wrongdoing. The new law would give the office the additional responsibility of tracking and reviewing investigations and audits performed by various entities, including GAO and VA's IG, and as well as overseeing disciplinary actions and other corrective actions recommended by those entities. Congressman Jamie Raskin, who voted against the bill, argued it does not go far enough to protect the due process rights of employees indicating the legislation as drastic could undermine the collective bargaining rights and the due process rights of VA's workforce. Some have speculated that this law serves as a test run and that lawmakers might try to pass additional legislation in the future to expand its provisions to other federal agencies. Shifting gears, House appropriators began moving their fiscal year 2018 agency funding bills in June, and by months in had advanced seven of their 12 spending measures including the defense bill that proposes to fully fund a 2.4% pay raise for military personnel. I should note that House appropriators have made additional progress on the annual spending bills uh, since the end of June and now the first half of July. Uh, and the Senate Appropriations Committee began its work this week. Uh, you can always check out From the Hill's appropriation scorecard on the VA website to stay current on the status of those measures. They're moving pretty quickly. Under the House's Defense Appropriations Bill, the Department of Defense would get $584.2 billion in discretionary funding for the coming fiscal year. That's $68.1 billion above the current enacted level and $18.4 billion more than the White House's request. And in addition, uh, there will be, under that proposal, $73.9 billion for overseas contingency operations. Meanwhile, the House Armed Services Committee has approved a defense policy bill that authorizes a total of $631.5 billion for DOD's base budget and $65 billion for the OCO account. I'll go into further detail on that bill in a moment. House Armed Services Committee Chairman Mac Thornberry acknowledged the differences in proposed funding levels between authorizers and appropriators and noted that both bills are currently in the early stages of the legislative process and that changes could be made in the 2011 Budget Control Act cap to accommodate higher defense spending levels. Under the 2011 Budget Act, uh, it's also called the sequester law, defense spending would be capped at $549 billion for fiscal year 2018. The other five appropriations bills that moved in the House in June are agriculture, which proposes $20 billion in discretionary funding for agricultural research, animal and plant health, and conservation programs, among others. And that's an $876 million cut compared to this year's level, but it's $4.64 billion above the administration's request. The Commerce, Justice, and Science Bill, which proposes $54 billion in discretionary funding for the Departments of Commerce and Justice, NASA, and other related agencies, a decrease of $2.6 billion, but $4.8 billion above the President's request. The Energy and Water Bill, which proposes $37.56 billion for National Defense Nuclear Weapons Activities, the Army Corps of Engineers, various programs under the Department of Energy, and other related agencies. That would be a $209 million cut to the current level and $3.65 billion more than the White House request. The Financial Services and General Government Bill, 
which proposes $20.23 billion in funding for the Treasury Department, the Small Business Administration, the General Services Administration, and other related agencies. And that's a $1.28 billion cut compared to the fiscal year 2017 level, and $2.48 billion below the President's request. And finally, the Military Construction and Veterans Affairs Bill, which contains a total of $88.8 billion in discretionary funding for fiscal year 2018, $6 billion above this year's enacted level, including $638 million in contingency funding for overseas operations. That bill also would fund implementation of the VA Accountability and Whistleblower Protection Act, which I talked about earlier, and proposes $65 million to fund VA's plan to transition to the same electronic health record system as the one used by DOD. There's no shortage of speculation over how the fiscal year 2018 appropriation season will play out. Congress got off to a late start on the spending bills due to the late May release of the White House's full budget request, so it is doubtful that Congress can complete work on the individual appropriations bills by the September 30th deadline. If recent history is any indication of how this year's appropriation season might play out, Congress will be forced to pass a stopgap funding bill called a continuing resolution that would fund agencies at current law levels at least for the first part of the new budget year. In any event, Congress is required by the Budget Control Act of 2011 to adhere to its discretionary funding caps for defense and non-defense programs for the coming fiscal year. Unless Congress acts to modify or repeal the automatic cuts mandated by the 2011 budget law, appropriators will be working under a total discretionary funding ceiling of $1.064 trillion for the government, and that's $549 billion for the defense category and $515 billion for the non-defense category. And what, what is a category, uh, home, some Homeland Security uh, uh, initiatives programs are also um, part of that. It's not solely the Department of Defense. That's why it's called a, a more broader term category. And that total amount under the 2011 budget law would represent a $6 billion or less than 1% cut from the total overall 2017, the current enacted level, which is $1.070 trillion. I'll, keep, I'll be keeping a close eye on how Congress addresses the limiting sequester, so stay tuned. The House and Senate versions of the Fiscal Year 2018 National Defense Authorization Act also advanced in June, easily passing the House and Senate Armed Services Committees. And the House version is expected to get a floor vote by the end of this week. As expected, House Armed Services Committee Chairman Mac Thornberry added language to his chamber's NDA based on his Defense Acquisition Streamlining and Transparency Act of which a key provision would direct GSA to con contract with multiple commercial online marketplaces, which is another way of saying Amazon and Staples and those types of online uh, stores, so civilian and defense agencies can procure commercial off-the-shelf items. And the goal of that is uh, to get those products faster and at the best price. This is a significant modification to Thornberry's original proposal, which covered only DOD. The House Armed Services Committee expects that by contracting with numerous marketplaces, there will be sufficient competition already baked in with respect to commercial off-the-shelf items. So the legislation does not require GSA to use competitive procedures to contract with each online marketplace. Other key provisions would require funding requests for service contracts to be submitted through DOD's yearly budget submission. A change Thornberry believes will force DOD to analyze actual needs and spending patterns, much like they do for weapons direct DOD to shift at least 25% of incurred cost audits to the private sector over the coming years to help reduce 
the defense contract audit agency's backlog, a move uh, aimed at allowing DCA to focus its expertise on forward pricing audits. The White House has just weighed in on that, um, and they are opposed to that language. The final uh, uh, highlight that I'd like to go over in the, in the House NDA is uh, it proposes to restrict funding for service-unique contract writing systems into, in fiscal year 2018 to address concerns over duplication in those systems. So Thornberry's latest proposals are, uh, he, he's aiming to build on his 2016 Acquisition Agility Act, which aimed to modernize DOD's acquisition system to better respond to technological advances and emerging threats, as well as the 2015 Agile Acquisition to Retain Technological Edge Act, which focused on rapid acquisition, the acquisition workforce, and contracting for services and information technology. So this is Thornberry's third uh, round of acquisition reform proposals. And in addition, some of the recommendations from the Section 809 panel's interim report were also added to the House's defense policy bill, including language to extend from 20 to 30 years the total allowable length of time for DOD contracts covering storage or distribution of liquid fuels and natural gas. A separate provision would move the panel's deadline for submitting its final report to January 15, 2019, and then dissolve the panel after six months of the final report being submitted. The Senate version of the fiscal year 2018 defense policy bill looks to bolster DOD's acquisition workforce. One provision proposes to establish a training program for procuring commercial items, and a separate provision would include in the definition of acquisition workforce, individuals engaged in buying or developing cybersecurity systems. The Senate bill also seeks to improve software procurement practices at DOD by establishing a pilot program to start effective new software activities by realigning troubled major software acquisitions. In addition, reorganize acquisition office, offices and senior leadership to encourage innovative, innovative solutions to complex challenges, and also address challenges from prior year defense acquisition reforms, including the use of commercial items in other transaction authorities. Other bills that advanced in June include the DHS Acquisition Review Board Act, which passed the full House. It would codify the Acquisition Review Board within the Department of Homeland Security and charge it with evaluating the Department's major acquisition programs and the use of best practices. The Energy Savings Through Public-Private Partnerships Act was cleared for House floor consideration in June. This bipartisan bill proposes to revise agency requirements related to energy savings performance contracts and utility energy service contracts with the goal of making federal buildings more energy efficient while saving money and improving the environment. In a pair of measures approved by the House Small Business Committee to allow small business contractors to ask for a fee increase, known as a request for equitable adjustment, when an agency issues a change order and to update small business innovation research and small business technology transfer programs, in part by extending the deadline for assistance for administrative oversight and contract processing costs to September 30th, 2022. Congressman Trey Gowdy has replaced uh, just retired Congressman Jason Chaffetz as chairman of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee, which has broad jurisdiction over federal contracting matters. Gowdy has not announced publicly his legislative priorities for the committee. However, since 2011, or the start of the 112th Congress, he has co-sponsored a number of bills addressing federal acquisition, regulatory, and workforce policies, 
including measures proposing to require enactment of a joint resolution or approval prior to any major rule taking effect, to prohibit federal agencies from deducting labor organization fees from the salaries of their employees, and to prohibit agencies from hiring more than one employee for every three employees retiring. Now I hand it off to Brittany for some updates from the administration. Thanks, Scott. Let's start with OMB. The Office of Management and Budget created a buzz when it released guidance on June 15th dropping or modifying 59 existing reporting requirements it deemed unnecessary and outdated. This efficiency initiative canceled acquisition reporting requirements, including Pre-Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act, or FATARA, directives that may now be obsolete and the 100% target for reporting past performance on awards above the simplified acquisition threshold. However, not everyone was pleased with the numerous rollbacks OMB announced. Two congressmen wrote to the agency, asking it to restore two policies that provided additional transparency over agency conference spending, originally spurred by questions costs at a 2010 conference sponsored by GSA. In addition, a letter from the Professional Services Council asked ONB for adjustments on directives related to accelerated payments to small business contractors, internal control reviews of agency acquisition function, and dropping of priority goals for performance.gov. We've created an at-a-glance publication to help you determine just which of these requirements could impact how you do business. Next, we have a two-part series to discuss in response to client requests for guidance on dealing with President Trump's many executive orders, we took a look at the nine orders that could impact solicitations in some way. We provided updates to include key and pending deadlines, guidance issued, and other news and developments. So, included in part one of the series, some of the most current activity involves the two regulatory reform orders. April 5th, OMB guidance confirmed that any agencies intending to issue any regulatory action on or before September 30 must identify beforehand which two regulatory actions will be removed. As you'll see in our regulatory section later, regulatory reform task forces have been busy seeking public comments on acquisition and overall agency regulations that could be repealed, replaced, or modified. Included in part two, uh, OMB saw public comments pour into the portal it established in April regarding President Trump's order on government reorganization. With over 110,000 comments received by the June 12th due date, OMB has plenty of material to develop its proposed plan to the President for reorganizing the executive branch by December. We also saw the fruition of the order creating the American Technology Council, which held its first meeting on June 19. And yes, acquisition and contract reform was one of the 10 topics discussed at the four-hour event attended by the President, government officials, and 18 industry leaders. Concerning President Trump's cybersecurity order, OMB put out guidance on May 19 with key deadlines related to Part 1, cybersecurity for federal networks. The next key deadline is actually tomorrow, when agencies must submit responses to the fiscal year 2017 quarter three Federal Information Security Modernization Act, Chief Information Officer metrics, and submit their framework implementation action plan through the DHS CyberScope system. 
for the order enhancing enforcement of the Buy American Act, OMB and Department of Commerce guidance came out at the end of June, and we will cover that in depth next month. We also heard a lot from industry and other government officials about how hard it would be to enforce Buy American provisions with increasingly multinational supply chains. VAO has provided some of its own guidance in an updated advisory, CO's Guide to Navigating the Buy American Statute and Trade Agreements Act, along with a companion piece, which is a table on domestic procurement restrictions. Now, we will go into what was new and noteworthy in June with Julie. Thanks, Brittany. As we touched on earlier, VA announced its long-awaited and perhaps unsurprising Electronic Health Record, or EHR, decision on June 5th. Secretary David Shulkin said at a news briefing that the agency would indeed move to a commercial solution from Cerner. The agency went with the same provider as DOD to promote interoperability between the two systems. To make the award on a sole source basis and shorten the procurement process to months instead of years, Shulkin signed a determination and findings document indicating the urgent need for an EHR upgrade. To move even faster on the potentially $4 billion-plus project, VA started collaborating with DOD contracting officials to leverage the procurement that led to its commercial EHR. Of course, the current Veterans Information Systems and Technology Architecture, or VISTA, is still years away from complete retirement. After reaching an agreement with Cerner, Shulkin plans to start a solicitation process for contractors to support integrating the new system with VISTA. Regarding the all-important question of funding, the House Appropriations Committee, as we mentioned earlier, provided a $65 million down payment in the 2018 VA and Military Construction Appropriations Bill. To ensure VA is getting the best deal, the legislation requires three things. Provision of detailed explanations of the sole source Cerner solicitation, information of how the EHR will be interoperable with DOD and community health systems, and details on how the transition from VISTA will occur. VA cannot obligate or spend more than 25% of the planned $418 million in IT modernization funding unless it meets those conditions. Along the side of FATARA, agency scores on how they're improving their management of IT acquisitions fell for the first time in the FATARA scorecard. Much of the grade slump can be attributed to three more agencies receiving an F in the category of data center optimization than in the last scorecard, which was released in December. And this means 10 agencies now have received a failing grade in that category. Across all of the categories, scores for 20 of the 24 agencies dropped or remained the same since December. The U.S. Agency for International Development came out on top. It's the only agency so far to ever receive an overall A, which is a vast improvement from the D-plus it received on the December scorecard. Honorable mention also goes to the only other three agencies to improve their overall grade, the Departments of Housing and Urban Development, State, and Transportation. DOD came in last overall with an F-plus. Some members of Congress expressed frustration over DOD's score, saying it's largely because the department claims many exemptions under national security and is not very transparent with its spending. Some members even threatened to stop supporting higher DOD funding until the agency is more open about how it's spending its IT budget. 
Dave Powner, Government Accountability Office Director of IT Management Issues, thinks DOD should not have all these exemptions from FATARA and that it needs a private sector type chief information officer. Powner also offered several ways agencies can work to improve their scores, including to ensure that the amounts of achieved data center consolidation cost savings and avoidances are consistent with the estimated savings, enhance transparency with the risk level of IP investments, implement incremental development of investments every six months to reduce risk and more quickly deliver capabilities, and to manage software licenses and identify unused software to help prevent purchasing too many licenses, as GAO reported in May of 2014 that just two agencies had comprehensive license, license inventories. Now we'll head back to Scott with some VA news. The new Seek and Prevent Fraud, Waste, and Abuse uh, initiative is helping VA to bolster its fraud reduction oversight efforts. VA will consolidate its oversight activities into a single enterprise-wide office. Previously, VA's health benefits and cemetery administrations all conducted their own separate fraud prevention and detection activities. For instance, VA's Office of Community Care caught $27 million in potentially fraudulent payments in fiscal year 2016, and its debt management center found over $11 million in potentially fraudulent activities so far this fiscal year. Through the STOP SWA initiative, VA aims to combine and heighten the efforts of those organizations. The centralized oversight body will also consider ways to continue with other agencies and learn from their fraud prevention efforts. The initiative will work under the guidance of a Prevention of Fraud, Waste, and Abuse Advisory Committee, which VA is currently assembling and will launch this month. The GSA blog provided an update on the effort to provide one central tool for contractors to submit FAR-required reports. Currently, they must send them to multiple locations in each contracting officer. The blog notes that Phases 1 and 2 of the Digital Accountability and Transparency Act, Section 5 pilots, were completed in May. These phases involved OMB and its partners, the Chief Acquisition Officers Council, the Department of Health and Human Services, and GSA gathering ideas on how to streamline reporting and conducting pilots of simplified reporting mechanisms. The next step is for OMB and partners to report on the recommendations resulting from pilot data collected by August. Rollout of the central reporting tool is scheduled for March 2018. DOD has been pleading with Congress for years now to start another round of base realignment and closures, or BRAC, to configure the military's infrastructure to reduce waste, but now industry experts are echoing the department's appeals. A bipartisan coalition of think tanks wrote a letter to Congress dated June 19 that supported BRAC as a fair and efficient process, saying that without it, defense communities are hurting and that Congress is only making the problem worse by blocking such measures. DOD has not conducted a BRAC since 2005 and most recently asked for one in 2021 in its fiscal year 2018 budget request. In the past five rounds of closures, DOD realized approximately $5 billion a year in savings and a 2016 report from the department estimates the possibility to save $2 billion a year by closing and consolidating other bases. Most lawmakers continue to express opposition to another background, but momentum may be building that could eventually overwhelm their objections. For one thing, DOD continues to emphasize that it has excess base capacity beyond what is required for its needs. 
President Trump has repeatedly stressed his, his desire to increase the size and capabilities of, mil of the military services, but that build-out would be funded in part with cost savings realized from waste reduction. DOD's plea for authorization to rid itself of excess overhead may start to fall on more friendly ears if the President continues to advocate for this as a priority. And several members of Congress are already on board with FRAC as it is, including House Armed Services Committee Ranking Member Adam Smith, who actually floated a BRAC bill earlier this year. And on to VA, paying for vacant buildings doesn't make too much sense. So Secretary David Shulkin vowed to dispose of some 1,100 properties that the agency has marked as vacant or underused. His plan is to divest all vacant VA buildings in 24 months. There are 430 vacant or mostly vacant VA buildings that will either be demolished or prepared for reuse. About 100 of these buildings are from the Revolutionary War or Civil War. Those buildings have maintenance costs that are draining the agency of more than $7 million per year. So the department needs them gone. VA got a head start on disposing and reusing 71 of those buildings, but we'll start the process for another 71 in the next six months and the remaining 288 within 24 months. VA may be able to wring additional savings from disposing or reusing another 784 non-vacant but underused buildings. VA could maximize space management by leasing or altogether eliminating office space across the country with a telework program and digitization of claim files for the Veterans Benefits Administration. This would save an estimated $15.7 million annually. One way DOD as a whole is using a new innovation to make acquisition more efficient is through the Defense Acquisition Visibility Environment. With a DOD portfolio of around $1.7 trillion from paperclips to aircraft carriers, the environment provides a helping hand in moving that data around to inform program oversight, decision-making, and reporting to Congress. In techno terms, the application programming interface and analytics-driven acquisition reporting system provides the framework that covers the classification, business rules, sourcing and security, and applicable laws, policies, regulations surrounding that data. Now, GSA is seeking a new tool to increase efficiency in another area of acquisition, the proposal review process. The agency specifically put out a request for quotations for intelligent automation and distributed ledger technology to improve and make its fast lane review process for IT proposals even faster. Basically, the system would have multiple decision rules and workflows programmed into it and be able to spit out interim uh, evaluation results. So GSA wants almost soup to nuts automation, everything except the proposal rejection or contract award decisions. Technical requirements include being able to operate on cloud platforms at the moderate level of the Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program, using open source and open data, and possibly being able to integrate with both GSA and Federal Public Key Infrastructure Systems. And moving on, it's only been a year since GSA launched its Technology Transformation Service, but now that the agency is undergoing reorganization, the service will be folded into GSA's Federal Acquisition Service, having all the agencies that are working toward government modernization under a single organization's roof makes good sense to GSA. 
As part of the move, TTS will be renamed Technology Transformation Services. That's with an S added to the end. And the FAST commissional role will become a political position. Alan Thomas has been appointed to replace Tom Sharp in that spot. It does appear that there was, at the very least, a clash of wills happening that had some hand in the shakeup beyond just the sensible organization GSA touted. According to a GSA Office of Inspector General report released at the end of June, former GSA Administrator Denise Turner-Roth in 2015 had planned to fund the startup of the TTS with money from the Acquisition Services Fund. Former FAST Commissioner Tom Sharp, who was responsible for the ASF, and FAST Deputy Commissioner Kevin Ewell Page expressed concern about using the fund for that purpose. So as a result, Sharp was apparently accused of not playing ball by Turner Roth and Deputy Administrator Adam Neufel. After the men uh, raised their objections, Turner Roth also consulted internally about having them both transferred. Though she ultimately decided against doing so, and she did alter the job responsibilities for Sharp, including taking away his control of the ASF. Sharp annual page both stepped down in late June in the wake of the TTS reorganization. So let's move on now to GAO and IG Oversight Insight. GAO reported some good news for agencies' use of small business contracting, specifically the SBIR and STTR programs. In fiscal year 2015, Eight of 11 agencies met the requirement to spend at least 2.9% of their extramural research and development obligations on SBIR, and four of five agencies met the requirement of 0.4% for STTR. Only one agency actually fell below the SBIR requirement, um, and GAO could not make determinations for the Environmental Protection Agency and SBIR or for DOD in both programs, because they reported budget authority amounts for extramural R&D instead of obligations data. However, GAO found more widespread agency issues with submitting methodology reports to SBA. One problem was that only five agencies submitted them on time, but the biggest challenge was meeting the requirement to itemize the programs they exclude from their extramural R&D calculations and the reasons for those exclusions. In this regard, only nine agencies at least partially itemized exclusions, and eight at least partially explained the reasons for those exclusions. The only recommendation GAO had was for DOD and EPA to establish some procedures to collect and submit obligations data or propose to Congress another means of calculating spending requirements for their agencies. EPA responded that it will work on alternative means. Agencies are supporting open innovation through various methods, GAO found. Through open innovation, agencies can adopt ideas, expertise, and resources from outside organizations to help them better achieve mission goals. Strategies that agencies are using include crowdsourcing and citizen science, ideation, open data collaboration, open dialogues, and prize competitions and challenges. GAO said that GSA, OMB, and the Office of Science and Technology Policy in particular has been encouraging open innovation. These agencies have been using such strategies as policies and guidance that clarify legal authorities and suggest actions 
for establishing and implementing an open innovation initiative, dedicated staff who can advise and assist agencies on employing initiatives and open innovation-related communities of practice where staff can come together and share ideas, and websites that, one, provide easier access to relevant guidance and information to replicate, like applications, templates, documents from other agencies, and two, serve to reach potential participants. With that said, GSA, OMB, and OFTP's government-wide guidance for open innovation strategies reflect practices to varying extents because of differing scopes and methodologies. GAO also gave honorable mention to six other agencies for their open innovation efforts. Improper payments are widespread across the government, but a recent GAO report suggests that numbers reported by IGs might, might be misleading. GAO found 15 of 24 Chief Financial Officers Act agencies were non-compliant with the Improper Payments Elimination and Recovery Act of 2010, and that 52 programs within these agencies made up about 96% of the improper payment estimates for the government in 2015. However, GAO suggests that this information might not be totally reliable, saying that IG's determinations of agencies' compliance with the Act was not consistent. Some watchdogs determined compliance based on whether required analysis or reporting existed, regardless of whether the IGs identified any flaws. Other IGs reported compliance based on their evalu evaluative procedures of whether agencies' analyses or reporting were, sub quote, substantively adequate, end quote. Basically, the agencies that some IGs determined were compliant showed similar results to ones identified as noncompliant. Much of the confusion is due to a lack of clear guidance on the Act from OMB and the Council of Inspectors General on integrity and efficiency. No guidance clearly says what, if any, evaluative procedures should be performed during IG's compliance determinations. GAO recommended that IG's receive clearer guidance on procedures for compliance determinations. Energy Savings Performance Contracts, or ESCCs, and similar Utility Energy Service Contracts, or UESCs, are a great option for helping agencies to fund energy projects and achieve savings from energy efficiency. These contracts are funded through public-private partnerships, so agencies don't have to rely on federal appropriations, but instead use private dollars. In fact, the House passed a bill this month related to these agreements that requires agencies to implement energy efficiency measures if they are cost-effective, whereas before agencies only needed to evaluate whether such energy efficiency measures exist. DOD has relied on these alternative funding methods to pay for its energy projects. From 2005 to 2016, it entered into roughly 38 private sector contracts per year for projects that help the military services reach energy goals and improve energy efficiency. DOD and military officials identified that advantages for using such alternative funding arrangements over federal appropriations include being able to fund projects that otherwise would not be possible because of budgetary constraints, complete projects more quickly, and have experts available to implement and manage the, the project. The disadvantages, though, include higher costs and risks related to long-term financial obligations. However, when GAO reviewed DOD's alternatively funded energy projects, it found the department had provided inaccurate and incomplete project data that may be impacting decision makers' oversight and future budget plans for other projects, which is something that other agencies should be aware of if implementing similar agreements. Because of decentralized authority and data that is not consistently maintained, 
DOD and GAO could not identify total contract costs for nearly half of the alternatively financed energy projects. Though GAO found that all of the alternatively financed energy projects it reviewed reported achieve, achieving expected savings, there were inconsistent methods used to estimate savings, particularly for UESDs, which are funded by utility companies. GAO says that DOD needs standard methods to estimate savings and verify savings across its military services with consistent guidance between the department and OMB. Let's move on to what's new in the regulations and policies governing your work. To start off, you'll recall that in March, Congress passed and President Trump signed a resolution of disapproval which blocked implementation of the Obama administration's Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces executive order and the corresponding final rule. These would have required contracting officers to consider a firm's record of compliance with federal and state labor laws as part of the determination of contractor responsibility, though it would have been limited to higher value contracts. That March action by lawmakers nullified specific FAR clauses related to all of this. So on June 12th, the Civilian Agency Acquisition Council issued a class deviation from the FAR, which directs, ag which directs agencies to ensure their new solicitations do not contain the clause at FAR 52.222-60, which pertains to paycheck transparency requirements, and they need to immediately remove the clause from any solicitations with it in there and modify contracts containing the clause. The Council also provided agencies with discretion to use a revised version of the FAR provision in Section 52.212-3 that removes changes made by the Fair Pay Rule. SBA on June 2nd issued a final rule that vests its Office of Hearings and Appeals with authority to hear and decide petitions for reconsideration of size standards. The rule also details rules for size standard petitions and revises general practice rules, includes size standard petitions as part of SBA's process for establishing size standards, and revises the rules for OHA appeals for SBA employee disputes. The changes implement sections of the NDAAs for fiscal year 2016 and 2017, and they became effective on July 3rd. A major modification to an Office of the Director of National Intelligence Directive will increase reporting requirements for executive branch workers and contractors who hold sensitive positions or have access to classified information. The Changes to Security Executive Agent Directive, or SEAD 3, effective June 12th, require the individuals affected by the directive to disclose their so-called foreign contacts, as well as their plans for unofficial foreign travel prior to a trip. Employees will also need to report if they had contact with or exchanged information with someone in a foreign government, with foreigners asking about DOD information, or with a suspected foreign intelligence agent. This all sounds a lot more exciting than my vacations. When I go away, I pretty much just find myself talking to waiters and asking for directions. Okay, so back to the directive. It also sets out reporting requirements for personnel in non-critical sensitive positions and critical sensitive or special sensitive positions. And this would encompass disclosing things like, oops, you got arrested, or hey, guess what, you're married to a foreign national, things that I assume from my spy novel reading could be used by nefarious characters as leverage to obtain sensitive information from you. 
ODNI also outlines employee behaviors colleagues are required to report to their local security office, such as unwillingness to comply with rules, substance abuse, or misuse of government property or information systems, among many other bad behaviors. USAID on June 23rd rolled back a proposed rule to incorporate into its acquisition regulation a warrant program for cooperating country national personal service contractors. The rule was meant to alleviate a shortage of U.S. direct hire contracting officers by delegating limited CO authorities to a select number of those personal service contractors. However, USAID has decided not to proceed with it. And finally, as we mentioned earlier, a lot of government agencies joined GSA and DOE, which were the first on this bandwagon in May, in putting out a call for input from the public or anyone else who cares to comment. It should be noted that can include employees in the know on suggested ways to reduce regulatory burden. Now, because we are having our update a bit late this month to accommodate the 4th of July holiday, uh, one of the submission deadlines at least has already passed, but most are still open, including the Department of the Interior, which notably has no set deadline. Uh, they'll just be reviewing submissions on a rolling basis in case you'd like to have your voice heard on any of this. Note that DOD, in particular, wants input on Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement Part 252, Solicitation Provisions and Contract Clauses. So I have to believe some of you in our audience today may have some opinions on that chapter you'd like to share. You can follow our original news coverage on each of these items, which will provide further access to the Federal Register notices, and those contain instructions for submitting your comments. Time for an update on what's new in the world of court challenges and protest decisions. We're going to go with Flash. Last month in this update forum, we alerted you that DHS had opted to scrap entirely its embattled flexible Agile support for the Homeland Procurement for Agile Services. DHS faced two rounds of protests against the Flash program's awards. First in November, when it decided to withdraw its decision and go back to the drawing board with a revamped acquisition plan, and then again after announcing its second attempt in March at making awards. Now, certainly we all feel for any agency undergoing a challenge to a phase of its procurement process, but this was an occasion for special sympathy because DHS's Procurement Innovation Lab tried to incorporate some new approaches into its search for agile services providers, and we always root for things to go especially well for those pushing the acquisition envelope. Sadly, that wasn't the case, and DHS has since shed more light on just what went wrong with the $1.5 billion program. In its explanation to GAO, the agency said it had identified serious shortcomings with the procurement process for the vehicle, which included not making it inarguably clear how price realism was evaluated by the team or how the best value trade-off analyses were made, and evaluators using adjectival ratings when assessing offers. The agency couldn't even really go back and re-review the technical demonstrations because the video quality used to record those events was so bad. There was no way to equally reassess those performances. Plus, many of the personnel who helped with the evaluation are no longer available, nor does DHS have personnel in place with sufficient expertise with Agile software service to give it a firm footing from which to evaluate what offers are bringing to the table. 
The agency even told GAO in its motion to dismiss the protest that evaluation documents had been created or modified after the awards were made, which we're all very aware this is a big no-no. The upshot was the process was so flawed, at that point, DHS felt it was best to just scrap it. But all is not lost. Officials said they've learned a great deal from the experience. After all, hiccups or even outright failure can be a much more effective, if painful, way to learn compared to when everything works out smoothly. And they absolutely intend to give it another go with more up-to-date requirements that better reflect agency needs sometime after this calendar year is over. GAO sided with the Army in June against an unsuccessful offer's challenge to a 10-year, $580 million contract to supply handguns to its soldiers. The Army chose Sig Sauer's P320 model to replace the M9 Beretta, which the Army used for some 30 years as its pistol of choice, beating out both Glock and Smith & Wesson. Glock protested the award in February, contending the Army improperly evaluated its proposal, but the primary aspect of its argument was that the Army improperly interpreted the number of awards its request for proposals required the service to make. Specifically, Glock tried to argue that Section M of the RFP, which stated the Army could, quote, make up to three base awards, end quote, along with the language that described how the service would conduct a downselect if there were multiple awardees, obligated the service to make more than one award. However, GAO cited multiple legal precedents indicating that the language up to provided for a range of potential awards, not a number which the agency had to award. Consequently, GAO determined the RFP required just one award, though it allowed up to three. And while the Army's RFP stated how a downselect would be conducted if there was a need for it, it turned out the contenders weren't so close as to even require one to be conducted. The Source Selection Authority recorded in its written notes, SIG's proposal was slightly technically superior and much better than Glock's in licensing factors. So the deciding aspect came down to price. Since Glock wanted almost 40% more money than SIG, the choice of which offer represented the best value to the government was clear, particularly since there was no correlating superior performance for Glock. Though Glock did file its challenge in a timely manner, it was not within the five-day window after its debriefing. Therefore, SIG and the Army have continued to work under the contract since the award was announced in January. Although GAO denied or dismissed other portions of a challenge to an Office of Personnel Management Award for an Investigative Support Services contract, it sustained the two plaintiffs' questioning of the agency's price realism evaluations. Specifically, price evaluators for the contract found the successful offeror's price to be so low, they questioned whether the firm actually understood what was being asked of it. The winning firm, Private Solutions, submitted a bid that was $9 million below that of unsuccessful offeror Maximus Federal Services and $44 million below the bid submitted by the second protester, Next Tier Concepts. GIO affirmed OPM's records, which said that price evaluators had noticed the bid from Primus was significantly below that of not only the other offers, but also the independent government cost estimate. 
certain contract line item prices were also flagged as worrisome. And despite going back and forth with the proposer in discussions several times, OPM price evaluators were unable to resolve the discrepancies. However, GAO was unable to find any record that the price evaluators had communicated their concerns to the technical evaluators, nor that the tech technical evaluators were aware of and took this information into account, even if they had ultimately decided there was some sort of corresponding technical trade-off to this difference when making their source selection decision. Interestingly, the RFP did not state that the agency had to conduct price realism evaluations. And what's more, the top-level evaluators were certainly free to disagree with the concerns of the price evaluators. But GAO emphasized that evaluators' judgments must be reasonable and consistent with the solicitation provisions, and they must be adequately documented in the record. So the lack of any kind of documentation that this price issue was even mentioned, let alone considered and consciously dismissed, prompted GAO to side with Nextier and Maximus. It suggested that OPM conduct discussions with offerors in the competitive range, allow revised proposals to be submitted, and make a new award if required. OPM said it was evaluating GAO's decision and its resulting options. So your takeaway here, document everything. Somewhere in the evaluation process, it's possible either communications broke down and these grave concerns about the winning bidder being too cheap never came through to the proper parties, or they simply decided to disregard that assessment when they made their decision. But there's no way of knowing due to that same lack of documentation. Closing out the circle of life of award, protest, award, protest, DHS has finally, really and truly, awarded four keepsies a $1 billion cybersecurity contract spanning five years to Raytheon. DHS attempted multiple times last year to award its Development, Operations, and Maintenance, or DOMINO, program to Raytheon, but unfortunately, Northrop Grumman contested the award each and every time. The program is aimed at protecting federal agencies' computer networks, and that's just the kind of contract you want to have delayed repeatedly by a disgruntled offerer. But happy news. Everything's back on track, and Raytheon will be helping as part of its assigned work to upgrade the capabilities of DHS's Einstein Cyber Threat Detection and Defense System, which agencies are required to use to help shield their information systems. Last but not least, the Court of Federal Claims at the very end of May made a public filing of a decision that sheds further light on how the court interprets VA's responsibility to adhere to the rule of two more formally known as the Veterans Benefits, Healthcare, and Information Technology Act of 2006. The rule requires VA to set a procurement aside for veteran-owned or service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses if the CO concludes the agency could reasonably expect to receive two or more fair and reasonable offers from such firms. The Supreme Court in June 2016 resolved longstanding confusion about whether the rule applied when using federal supply schedule and multiple award schedule contracts. The answer, in essence, was yes. This new May 30th filing addresses which procurement priority takes precedence when, between the rule of two and the government-wide requirement to purchase from businesses that employ the blind and severely disabled. This mandate comes from the Javits-Wagner-O'Day Act. Since the Supreme Court decision, VA has been working to adjust its internal policies to reflect the ruling. In March, one of these such edits changed the priority from ability one purchases full stop 
to stipulating VA would perform a rule of two analysis for products or services added to the Ability One list after 2010. The move came as this was pending litigation and was brought by Plaintiff PDS Consultants, Inc., an SDVOSB supplier of eyewear and other vision-related products. The firm challenged VA's intent to consider awarding contracts to Ability One suppliers for categories added to Ability One, the Ability One list prior to 2010 without first performing a Rule of Two analysis. COFC's decision was absolutely black and white in this regard, with the judge concluding that for the award of any new contract, VA must perform the Rule of Two analysis. Specifically, the senior judge on the case wrote, quote, the preference for veterans is the VA's first priority. If the Rule of Two analysis does not demonstrate that there are two qualified veteran-owned small businesses willing to perform the contract, the VA is then required to use the Ability One list as a mandatory source, end quote. So there you have it. Further clarification on just how carefully this Rule of Two, rule of two needs to be observed by VA contracting personnel. And that is it for our look back at June. Thank you so much for joining us today. And a big thanks to all who have joined us on our podcast adventures. This podcast will be our last in the series, but we will still have many great ways for you to access the latest acquisition news and legislative updates on the VAO website. In addition to our daily news and more in-depth publications, our monthly update webinar is a great way to stay current on all things acquisition. Our monthly update webinar consolidates and summarizes all the key takeaways from the most important acquisition-related policies, guidance, regulatory changes, and more from over the previous month. Our next update webinar will be held Thursday, August 10th from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Just visit the VAO website to register, and no worries if you can't join us for the live event. The webinar will be posted on the VAO in its entirety within one week of the live date, so you can access the presentation whenever it's convenient for you. Please reach out to our customer care team at any time with any questions. The address is vaocustomercare at gotovao.com. Thanks again for tuning in today, everyone. We wish you all the best in your federal acquisition adventures, and we look forward to seeing you all again real soon on the VAO. Goodbye.